2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Anil Seth about his new book, Being You, a New Science of Consciousness. Anil Seth is a professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex and co-director of the Sackler Institute for Consciousness Science. Anil Seth's quest to understand the biological basis of conscious experience is one of the most exciting contributions to 21st century science. An unprecedented tour of consciousness, thanks to our new experimental evidence, much of which comes from Anil Seth's own lab. His radical argument is that we do not perceive the world as it objectively is, but rather that we are prediction machines, constantly inventing our world and correcting our mistakes by the microsecond, and that we can now observe the biological mechanisms in the brain that accomplish this process of consciousness. Seth's work has yielded new ways to communicate with patients previously deemed unconscious, as well as promising methods of coping with brain-damaging disease. Being You sheds light on the future of AI and virtual augmented reality, adds empirical evidence to cutting-edge ideas of how brain works, and ushers a new age in the study of the mystery of human consciousness. This book is a life-changing existential insight into Being You.
1: Well, Anil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: It's great to have you. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I'd like to start by asking how has it influenced you and your work?
1: Quite substantially, I think, like it has for many people. Work-wise, well, I run a, a cognitive neuroscience lab, so we've all been remote and we've been forced to use endless Zooms to keep in touch, and many of our experiments have stopped. But We've continued to do our research in some ways in, that, in the ways that we can. In that sense, it's, uh, we're quite lucky. We can do some experiments online um, and we can, of course, keep thinking about the mind and the brain, which is great. But you lack the everyday contact. You lack that everyday communication and exchange of ideas. And, and that's what I've really missed. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to whenever it is that we can get back into the lab and, and talk to each other again. And personally, it's been tough. I think it's been tough on, on many of us. I feel lucky, though, for uh, for having a job. Academia still has been a job during this time. And for living where I do, which is by the sea, and being able to get into the water, even in the cold of winter, has been one way that I've been able to, to get through the year.
0: And do you do any teaching?
1: I have, yeah. I I, I don't do that much teaching these days, but I do teach on a master's course about the neuroscience of consciousness. And I have to say that I think the students this year have really suffered uh, more than many people in society. The the master's course, for instance, it's a a one-year program. And so there's this whole cohort of students who've really never been here. And Normally in this course I would I would get to know them you know maybe not that well but I'd get to know them all a little bit and this year it just hasn't hasn't happened so the teaching you can do an online lecture and you can do remote seminars but it's uh, it's definitely suffered I think uh, um, from their point of view being able to be back in the same physical space will also be be something really to treasure.
0: And as you mentioned, you live near the coast. So have you developed any new useful habits uh, during this time? Maybe you took up new kind of sport? <laughs>
1: well, yeah, in a <laughs> way, yeah. So I've always loved living by the sea, whether it's here in Brighton or I used to live in California by the Pacific. And I've, I, I learned to surf when I was in California and it's very good in San Diego. It's less good surfing in Brighton, but it does happen from time to time. And Partly working from at home, which is five minutes from from the beach, but also just not traveling this year at all, I feel become much more attuned to the the rhythms of the sea than I was before. And I've been swimming all through the winter, which is something I wouldn't have contemplated doing because it gets pretty cold, the water here. But there's been something really rejuvenating about going into the sea at least once a week, even through the coldest part of the year.
0: Wow, that's impressive. <laughs>
1: Well, it's not that impressive. I I still wear a a wetsuit of sorts. I still wear a short wetsuit. There's a whole bunch of people in Brighton who go swimming several times a week, whatever the weather, uh, without a wetsuit. Now that's impressive.
0: Oh dear. Maybe next year, right?
1: (laughs) I think I've reached my limit.
0: So as I mentioned, you run the Cognitive Neuroscience Lab. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background?
1: I was always and still am interested in these kind of overarching big questions about the mind and the brain. Where does consciousness come from? What does it mean to be yourself? Uh, what's free will? These these very philosophical and probably in some sense unanswerable questions. And so my background has been quite diverse. Uh, I started off studying physics, partly because I wanted to develop a background that was quantitative and partly because I thought at the time and still think to some extent that physics is sort of the the most fundamental of all the sciences and ultimately every aspect of nature that can be explained will be explained in terms of physics. But after a while studying physics, I became seduced by psychology and, and biology as perhaps more direct routes to understanding phenomena like consciousness and perception. Uh, so I ended up with a degree in, in experimental psychology, and then I became very interested in computational modeling and in, in things like neural network as I thought incredibly interesting and promising approach to linking properties of mind with properties of the brain. So my PhD at Sussex, which is where I still am now, was in artificial intelligence. uh, And that was uh, 20 years ago now. And after that, I then uh, did a postdoc in San Diego in California, which was the first time that I really focused on consciousness more explicitly and um, on the more neuroscientific aspects of consciousness. So that was a postdoc at a place called the Neurosciences Institute uh, which was hugely interesting, and it was very multidisciplinary in its in its approach too. It had scientists of, uh, doing brain imaging, but also people working with fruit flies, people working um, more in the arts as well. There was people interested in music and cognition, so it was a very rich mixture of disciplines. And then about 15 years ago now, I left that position and came to uh, back to Sussex for a faculty position, and since then, I've been trying to build up a, a little group of, of people here and working with some brilliant colleagues who are already here. And we we try to understand what we can about consciousness.
0: And how did you find moving uh, between and within all of these diverse fields? Was it easy?
1: It, no, <laughs> it's not. I don't think so, but I, I, I don't regret it. Um, when you move between fields, what it feels like from the inside is that the space of the level of your ignorance and the degree of your incompetence just becomes much broader and deeper. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's just many more things that I'm aware that I don't know about when moving between disciplines. That's the difficult part of it, but the benefits I think do outweigh that part of it, especially in an area like trying to understand the brain basis of consciousness, because we don't have the single discipline that's going to resolve that issue. It is still uh, a question that at its current stage, and maybe always, requires the combination of many different disciplines together. So bridging disciplines has been very important. And in my own history, I'm very, very glad that I had an initial training in physics, because it's allowed me at least to be able to engage with people who have uh, mathematical ability i don't have a ability to really generate new mathematical uh, descriptions or explanations myself, but I have just about enough that it can be part of the the work that we do and being able to to engage with real experts in these distinct disciplines um, that's been fundamental and uh, extremely rewarding part of the career as well.
0: And what roles uh, did the mentors play during your journey? Did they inspire you?
1: Very much, very much so. I think I've been very lucky, uh, in that way. I, it goes back to when I was an undergrad, even as an undergrad student, there was the, the professor of psychology, um, that I came into contact with, he was already very encouraging about my interest in in carrying on. I'd never really considered a career in academia until the end of my undergraduate degree. And and just to have somebody express a bit of interest and confidence in what you might do was very meaningful. And then uh, my PhD mentor was, was also very meaningful in a very different way, in quite unexpected way. For my PhD, I was allowed the freedom to explore and to make mistakes and to go down rabbit holes. And I came out of that PhD, perhaps not with a very advanced and developed skill set, but with a, a good instinct for curiosity. And I think that's what he gave me. But then probably my most significant mentor, if I'm honest about it, was my postdoc mentor, uh, Gerald Edelman, who was the director of the Neurosciences Institute. And he was one of the figures he, he died, unfortunately, Uh, in 2014, but he was one of the figures who was at the center of bringing consciousness back into the fold as a a legitimate scientific question, and so his guidance in how to think about consciousness, how to think about it from a biological perspective, was very, very influential in, in the way I came to think and came to do my own research.
0: So what would be your advice to young career researchers that might consider moving from one field to another, but still a bit unsure?
1: I think try to understand what's driving that desire. If it's just a sort of cherry picking desire that, oh, this discipline is interesting as well, I should learn a bit more about that. Then maybe there's something to to think a bit harder about. Moving between disciplines or crossing disciplines is very, very helpful when you, you have a more fundamental reason for why you're doing it. There's a, there's a question that leads you to think, okay, I need uh, to connect discipline Y to discipline X in order to get at this question. Uh, and that's, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that as a matter of just how things turn out in practice, it seems to be easier to move from more quantitative disciplines to less quantitative disciplines. Um, Hmm. That is a lot of people come into into cognitive neuroscience and consciousness research, for instance, they might've started out in physics or maths and then developed their knowledge of psychology and neuroscience and philosophy. Uh, That happens more frequently than the other way around. It seems that acquiring sort of deep mathematical knowledge is a thing that young people are better at doing
0: it, it does look like you're really passionate about uh, the uh, question on consciousness so can you tell us how did you come to writing
2: the book about it
1: i was finally persuaded that i ought to get on and do it i mean it's 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 one of those things i think once you've been working on a topic for a long time it's always in the back of your mind that oh, i should really i should really write this up as a book Especially for me, I, I, over the last 10 years, I've got more and more interested in the public engagement and communication aspects of, of scientific work. I find it a really rewarding thing to do. I think it's a really important thing for scientists to do as well, to to try to convey what's, what they're doing, what's going on, and the wider relevance and implications of it. Uh, and part of that is the idea of, of writing a book, try to put everything together in one place in an, in an accessible way. And it was so it was always going to happen. It was more just a question of, of when and about four or five years ago now, uh, I, I met uh, somebody after a talk and, and he was very instrumental in persuading me that now was the time to to put a proposal together and get it going. But it still took a long time after that. It it's, it's, uh, took about four years to write it from having made the decision to write it. Not a small project, but I'm, I found it very uh, rewarding thing to do, if also frustrating at times.
0: And yes, as you mentioned, the book indeed is is quite accessible. So it's uh, uh, very, very nice to read. So I was just wondering whether you were always uh, such an avid and good communicator of science? Or did you have to learn those skills?
1: It's very kind of you to say so. I it's I'm not sure if I am, but I'm certainly trying to be and I would definitely say it's something that I had to learn. And it's one of the I think one of the missed opportunities in a scientific education is that the ability to communicate generally and accessibly is not often taught. We're taught informally how to write scientific papers even that's not formally taught very often we tend to pick it up from our mentors from our peers from our colleagues but how to condense complex messages in accessible ways that again is something that most of us when we do learn it we we learn it informally we learn it by example we learn it by practice and I've just been quite lucky to have the opportunity to practice it quite a bit and I'm still learning and I still try to force myself to listen back to things and to watch things that I've done so I can figure out how to do it better uh, the next time. But it's definitely something that we don't, or maybe there are some rare gifted people who are born with this as, a, as an innate ability, um, but certainly I had to practice a great deal and I still do.
0: Yeah, and it's a really great for you to... Uh, to say that, that indeed people can learn, even if they don't really have the skills uh, or uh, sort of uh, like talent for it uh, as as it is. But you
1: can learn I mean, definitely definitely. I think it, it it's it's a skill. We all mm. we might have aptitudes that we can pick some things up more easily than than other things, but it's definitely a skill. It's definitely learnable. there are there are things that can be taught as well. There are some strategies about what sorts of things work, what sorts of things don't work, Um, it depends on the medium, whether it's a a podcast or a, or a talk or an interview or or a video, there there are various little tricks here and there, um, that I'm still trying to learn what they are. Uh, But yeah, everybody can learn this to some extent, I'm pretty sure.
0: Okay, so let's start
1: with the easy question. What is consciousness? That, of course, as you know, that's not an easy question, and it's, there. it's however many times it gets asked, it's always a challenging question. But I'll try and, yeah, make, it sure. an, I'll try and make it an easy question. Uh, because I think at, at root, beneath all the philosophical complications that emerge when we try to define consciousness rigorously, there's a very simple intuition. Consciousness is the presence of any subjective experience whatsoever. I usually go back to the philosopher of mine, Thomas Nagel, who said that for a conscious creature, there is something it is like to be that creature. There's something going on for that creature. Uh, so there's something it's like to be me, something it's like to be you. There is nothing it's like to be a table. There's nothing going on for that table to be a table. That's where consciousness starts. It's it's just sheer the raw fact of experience of lived experience in the world and then you can divide it up into different ways you can say there's the difference between being awake and asleep that's something like global conscious state or conscious level then there's conscious perception what we experience when we are conscious what what underpins the particular experience we're having now things like colors shape smells and so on And then there's an important subset of that, which is the experience of being an individual, the experience of being a self. And that's what the book ultimately is about. And that's, I think, where my interests fundamentally lie, trying to understand this experience of being a self.
0: So what are the ways that we can try and understand it?
1: Well, this is why it's a multidisciplinary thing. It's, it's a very—it's—it's it's not one mystery. I think there are so many different aspects to the study of consciousness, and that it can be uh, a mistake to think of it as one big scary mystery that we need to solve in one dramatic eureka moment of a solution. Philosophically, there are a lot of interesting problems and open problems about, I think, sharpening the question: What do we really mean when we talk about a conscious state or a conscious content? What indeed would constitute an acceptable and satisfying solution to the problem or problems of consciousness? What, what do we expect from a science of consciousness? These are super interesting philosophical questions that apply to consciousness in general, but also to things like free will. What do we mean by it? What's a sensible conception of free will that fits within a, a naturalistic scientific worldview? Um, but then philosophy by itself is not going to deliver answers to all of these questions. That's when we also need to combine philosophy with, with experiment. And so here we have the huge, uh, huge array of things we can do from neuroimaging, uh, where we can look inside the living human brain, see what's happening while people are doing things, to virtual reality. We can start to manipulate people's experiences in rich and immersive ways. And back to basic psychophysics, the kind of work that's been going on in psychology labs for, since the birth of psychology for more than a century, where we give people very, very simple perceptual tasks, you know, which way are the dots moving, left or right? And from those very simple tasks, we try to infer uh, what's happening inside their brains that underpins what they actually see.
0: So do you think all of these technological advances can help with the defining the objective criteria of consciousness?
1: I think they can help, but I don't think they're a panacea and they can, in fact, sometimes mislead. Take brain imaging, for example, it's a wonderful tool. We can we can look at the activity of different brain regions in many different conditions. And of course, we'll see differences when people fall asleep or if they're in a state like a coma or a vegetative state. But sometimes we can take the technology too seriously or or we can take its measurements too literally. And so functional magnetic resonance imaging, to take this example again, one of the most popular brain imaging methods, encourages us to see the brain in terms of distinct modules or distinct areas that are either active or not active. And that can be a constraining way to think about what the dynamics in the brain that underlie consciousness are actually like, which might be very rich patterns of interaction that unfold over very fast timescales. So it's important, I think, to recognize that all the tools we have are, are blurry and indirect windows in, onto something that we, we don't have complete access to they're all partial all the views we have are, are partial there's an old philosophical anecdote I think about uh, a lot of blind people surrounding an elephant and they all touch the elephant from different directions and try and figure out what's there. They're all very indirect inferences and the question is can they ever figure out that what what they're surrounding is actually an elephant or will it just be this sort of incoherent combination of, of observations? But there's no doubt that that technology helps us advance our uh, our understanding of some of these questions.
0: But also, technology, by the virtue of being something, it also limits uh, our understanding, just like you describe uh, with the with the blind man and uh, an elephant, isn't it?
1: Yeah, we should always just remember that the technologies are tools; they're not answers in themselves. And try and remember to. I think. I think. Sorry to. I think we should. I've tried to think i mean part of the whole scientific process is thinking about what are the right questions to ask and sometimes it's tempting to answer that question just with respect to the technology that you have like you have a hammer so everything looks like a nail Uh, and i think we need to retain and people do i'm certainly not saying this doesn't happen but sometimes it's helpful just to reflect on we should Think about questions that we want to ask, even if the technology to answer those questions, uh, doesn't yet exist. That's one avenue towards real progress, because maybe there are other ways to answer that question, or maybe asking that question raises other questions that, that can be answered. The technology is a tool. It's not the answer.
0: So in the early days of studying consciousness, what were the questions and have they changed?
1: I think the questions have changed a little bit. Um, I mean, there's one practical example of how some of the questions underlying consciousness have, have changed. In the early 1990s, when the neuroscience of consciousness was again being taken a little bit more seriously, there was a, a fairly clear methodology that was proposed by people like Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, and his, his collaborator, Christoph Koch. And this is the, the neural correlates of consciousness method. And this has a very simple uh, agenda, and it's valuable because it's simple. It is to identify what processes in the brain go along with particular states of consciousness. What, what in the brain correlates with consciousness? So certain parts, certain things happening in the brain will happen differently when you go unconscious under anesthesia. Or for instance, in a situation like binocular rivalry where you shine two different images into the different eyes and your conscious perception flips from one to the other. In both of these cases, you can ask, what in the brain is changing when consciousness changes? That's a very, very useful question to ask, Uh, but correlations by themselves don't really explain anything. They just put constraints on possible explanations. So now I think a whole new raft of questions are becoming answerable, which try to say, well, why, for instance, is the experience of redness different from the experience of sadness? What is it about what's happening in the brain or in any system that might explain that difference. That's, I think, a a more subtle and a a more difficult question to answer, but it's the kind of question that I think in the science of consciousness we need to address.
0: So does our perception of the brain processes, uh, which shifted a little bit from the modular more towards network, also change the perception of how consciousness uh, might arise from the brain structures?
1: The history of neuroscience has always been this battleground between functional localization, thinking of the brain as a set of relatively functionally isolated modules that goes back to Broca and, and earlier, and this mm. idea of distributed function, which is now prominent again, rather than just sort of mass action where the whole brain is is pretty homogenous. We now think in terms of distributed networks, every function is implemented by a network. There's something trivially right about that. I mean, I don't think anybody would would... These days, or probably ever, would have argued that something that we do as an organism is completely uh, explained by the activity of one single part of the brain. That's just uh, that's a bit too extreme. But now, yeah, we have this this interesting dynamic between recognizing that there is functional localization and functional specialization. Different parts of the brain do different things but then there's also collective activity. So there do seem to be uh, networks of activity that can be, in a way, they can serve as alternatives to to regions. We can start talking about different networks as underlying um, different functions. But it's not that networks uh, avoid the problems of oversimplification that you get when thinking about uh, brain areas. So just as it might be a mistake to say that uh, my executive function is completely explained by my prefrontal cortex, it's also a mistake to say that my experience of selfhood is just what happens when the default mode network is, is active. Now we, can, we can always be too quick to, to cross levels in that way and to attribute properties to descriptions of the brain. That are really again only partial.
0: Yes, for sure. And uh, this understanding of the uh, modularity or uh, parts of the brain being responsible for one thing—it's not a static concept, isn't it? Because even if you remove one part of the brain during um, uh, the child development, in some cases you can completely rewire the brain, where another part will perform similar function of the part which was removed.
1: That's absolutely right. There's there's a lot of what we would call plasticity, a lot of potential for change, especially if the brain is is damaged at an early age. There can be a lot of compensation. I one of my the examples I think is most striking here is uh, the case of hemispherotomy or hemispherectomy. This is an operation carried out on on children who have life threatening epilepsy. Their epilepsy is so severe that it it puts them in danger. And in some cases, when all other treatments have failed, uh, there is a surgical intervention which basically removes or isolates completely the damaged half of the brain that's the source of epileptic seizures. And if this this is a huge intervention, you're getting rid of half a brain. Uh, It's already a a damaged half brain, but nonetheless, it's half a brain. And the remarkable thing is if you do this early enough, there's often enough compensation that the child can then develop and become completely normal and you wouldn't even know. I think that's, that's pretty extraordinary. There are other you know, less dramatic examples that happen all the time. There's always functional adjustment. Um, if people lose their sight later in life, then the visual cortex will start to be recruited for other purposes. And one of the neuroscientific dogmas that's been overturned is this idea that there's no new growth of brain cells once you reach a certain age. That turns out to be not true. There's, there are new brain cells being generated, not in maybe not in huge quantities, but the brain is indeed more dynamic than we often think. And just to riff on this a little bit more, I think it's a, one really important consequence of recognizing that is that it undermines a little bit this easy metaphor that the brain is a kind of computer and the mind or consciousness is the software that's running on the hardware or the wetware of the brain. This is a popular metaphor because we often reach to the dominant technology of the day to try to understand how brains work. And our dominant technology, at least up until now, maybe we're just about at the end of it, is the computer. So it's very natural to think of the brain as a computer and as mind as software. But if we think about the brain that way, that also encourages us to think that the uh, you know the brain is relatively stable as hardware, but the mind can change. And that's not how it is. There's not such a sharp distinction between mindware and wetware as there is between hardware and software in a conventional computer. And as we begin to recognize the roles that the changing wiring of the brain plays in our cognition, in our behavior, in our function, our perception, that I think will is is not something that's so easily aligned with this computational metaphor of the mind.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. And uh, that's really great that you mentioned that. Another thing that I was actually a little bit puzzled about is uh, uh, just putting everything on the circuit on the, on the circuitry basis for the consciousness because thinking about neurodevelopmental disorders for example um, which can arise from uh, different sort of wiring as far as we understand well neurotypical individuals are still conscious aren't they
1: oh definitely yes and I think this this points to this issue of thinking of consciousness as, as one thing mm. um, there are many, many different ways of being conscious. We're all, we all have different experiences of the world and of the self. And this whole territory of, of neurodiversity, it points just to how broad that space can be and that it's a mistake to think of consciousness as arranged on a, on a single scale from sort of zero to, to lots at one end. Um, no, there are many, many different ways of, of, of being conscious and part of the challenge that we face is to explore and begin to characterize the diversity of these perceptual worlds, both in in fellow humans, but also in other animals as well.
0: So what can we learn from other animals?
1: I think we can certainly learn that there's more than one way of being conscious. We we learn a great deal about this space of of other minds. It's very tricky though. There's there's obviously there's a great deal of hugely interesting work that tries to understand the cognitive limitations and the cognitive capabilities of, of other animals. And we find they're better at some things than we are and, and, and not as good at, at other things. Um, but beneath that question, which can be addressed with very clever experimental designs, beneath that question is this other question of what are their subjective worlds actually like back to... Thomas Nagel again, the question of what it is like to be a bat or or an octopus or a dolphin or a sea bass or or an insect. We, of course, can't know that. We can't have the experience of being a creature with a very uh, different brain. Um, But we can start to understand a little bit more about how it might differ from our own conscious experiences. So a good example here, or an example I, I think about quite a lot is with the octopus. The octopus is evolutionary, very, very distant from us. A shared common ancestor was probably some kind of flatworm. Um, But octopuses have developed minds independently. They are very smart. They are surprisingly short-lived, but they have certainly advanced cognitive capabilities. And they have this incredible, flexible, fluid-like body which changes color, which changes texture, changes shape, and has a certain autonomy. So octopus arms are able to direct their own behavior to some extent independently of the rest of the octopus. And for me, this is a a wonderful and insightful thing to consider because it totally challenges the idea that the way, for instance, we experience our body is just there and should be taken for granted. I mean, we have, as part of our experience of being an individual, this experience of this object, which is my body, which that's part of me and the rest of the world generally isn't part of me. Um, And what the mechanisms are that give rise to this, we still don't know enough about that. But there is this feeling that I know where my arms are, even if I'm not looking at them to some extent. And this whole thing might not be true for an octopus. Their bodies change in so many ways. They're so flexible that it seems quite implausible that the central brain is keeping track of where the different limbs are at any given time. And in fact, octopuses have this other more chemical or taste-based way of distinguishing self from other. And if you think about that for a while, if the brain, the central brain doesn't maintain a fully update, up-to-date representation of where the body is, then what would it be like to be an octopus? You might have only a very hazy conception of where in space you are, but of course you wouldn't perceive that as hazy. That would just be uh, the way it is. Now, this doesn't mean that I can suddenly experience what being an octopus is like, but it refracts back in interesting ways on thinking about what my experience of being me is like.
0: I wonder if uh, this experience of not knowing where in space you are can be closest that we can get to in the sleep paralysis. Uh,
1: maybe. I, one, one thing I tried recently um, over the last couple of years, are these uh, flotation tanks. I don't know uh, whether you've tried them or anybody, anybody listening has tried them. Um, so these are I think they often sometimes called sensory deprivation tanks though that's a bit more scary so we don't tend to see them advertised mm-hmm. that way but they are they're places where you can go and you float in very salty water which is at which is at body temperature and you're in a capsule which is completely closed off and completely silent and if you float there for long enough your body is completely supported uh, you need no effort at all, you don't sink, you don't, you're just, just nicely in the water, that for me, the sense of my body being an object in space began to dissolve more so than it's ever done in any other situation. I think sleep paralysis is different. There you've, you experience you've got a body, but it doesn't move, it doesn't respond to your command, and that can be quite distressing. What I'm talking about here is the experience of not having a body.
0: Interesting. So, would you recommend uh, people to try these tanks, or uh, did you have all positive experiences in them?
1: I would recommend it. I, I um, my experience was was to be honest, it was neither as dramatic as I hoped, but it certainly wasn't it wasn't aversive. It was a, sometimes it's a little bit boring. You've got to be in the right state of mind. <laughs> One time, I just fell asleep, which seemed to be a waste of money. I could have fallen asleep at home in my bed. Uh, <laughs> But a few times that I've done it, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's very refreshing too, and, and you come out and the world feels a little bit, a little bit different. But I, I think as someone who's interested in consciousness largely from a scientific perspective, you know, I also want to understand the range of possible experiences I can have from a first-person perspective as well. So that involves trying out different ways of experiencing the self and the world.
0: So as uh, people try different ways to understand themselves and the world, as you say, um, there has been a move to use uh, psychedelics, for example, to understand consciousness. So have they been fruitful in this uh, sort of way, or is it more, uh, sort of anecdotal? Most most on on most part.
1: No, I think it's moved beyond the level of anecdote now, and I think it's a very exciting opportunity. Uh, they also have a few concerns that. The uptake of interest in psychedelic research has been so enormous that we might be in a little bit of a bubble phase. I mean, I hope not, um, but, uh, because I think there is a remarkable opportunity here and certainly the, the people leading the effort in psychedelic research, uh, are, are fantastic researchers and the best people to, to be doing this. Um, it's hugely promising. It's hugely promising from a couple of different directions. From the basic science point of view of, of understanding uh, the brain mechanisms that shape consciousness well here you've got a remarkable intervention you can give somebody a a, a substance to ingest and then for some fairly well predicted number of hours they will have radically different set of experiences and then uh they'll be back you know, relatively to normal as well mm. they, you know obviously you you never quite return to the place you started out from, and so that that's a, a very powerful manipulation to change conscious experience, um, and see what happens in the brain while uh, while this is going on. This is completely separate from the medical side of it too. And, and here I, I'm not a I'm not a medically trained person, but I do think there's promising, if not overwhelming, evidence that psychedelics could be a useful treatment or or, or additional treatment pathway to some mental health uh, disorders. And that's also, I think, again, you don't wanna overstate the case, but I think it's, uh, it's an area that I'm very glad there are some now pretty well-funded and well-supported clinical trials going on. Because as you say, uh, s- science is not the sum of anecdote, when we want to establish something like the clinical efficacy of psychedelics, we need to do it by the standard routes, we need to do it through clinical trials.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Such an exciting field. (laughs) So as we move towards understanding our own self and our own consciousness, how can introspection help us? And how do we approach, um, approach doing it, really?
1: So, well, Introspection I think is 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 the first tool we we all it, it's it's an essential part of the whole process of of researching into consciousness introspection is looking into your own mind and and seeing uh, what's there there are some psychologists that would study introspection as the object of their study but m- most of the time we just use introspection as a kind of tool for consciousness research so, a typical experimental design would be something like we present people with various kinds of visual images, visual stimuli, and we might ask them to make a judgment about the stimulus. You know, for instance, are all the dots going to the left or all the dots going to the right? And then we might also ask them to make a judgment about how confident they are in that decision. Did they really see the dots going left or right. Um, And so that's asking an introspective question. We're asking them not to report on a state of the world. We're asking them to report on a state of their own mind. And by comparing these reports in in different ways, we can begin to to understand what's underpinning their experience of the world rather than simply their ability (laughs) to make perceptual judgments about that world. but there's also there's one thing I, I need to say, which is that it's often easy to confuse introspection with interoception. And the two things are very different. I'm interested in, in both, but actually more in interoception. And interoception is the perception of the body from within. Um, and so this is the idea that the brain has many, many different ways of sensing what's outside the brain. The world is outside the brain, and we sense that through the classical modalities like vision and hearing and smell. Uh, But then the body is also outside the brain. Uh, It's closer, but it's still outside the brain. And in fact, keeping the body alive is the primary duty of, of any brain. So it's no surprise that there's quite a lot of neural real estate that's dedicated to sensing and regulating the interior of the body. And that's what interoception refers to. It's this process of perception and, well, perception of uh the internal physiological condition of the body
0: that's a very useful distinction so thank you for that and i was just wondering from all of your experience why are we so interested in defining and studying consciousness and uh, what can we do with this uh, knowledge practically or
1: that's a really good question i am th- I'm probably the wrong person to ask the first part of that question to you. Like, why are we so interested in it? For me, it's like, why wouldn't we be? It's it's just, it's one of the, the eternal mysteries. I feel quite childish thinking about it because it's a question that first occurred to me as a kid. You just wonder, who am I? What's going on? What happens after I die? Uh, p- since they've been wondering about anything, people have been wondering about the nature of consciousness, maybe calling it different things and referring to it in, in different ways. They've been wondering about how wide consciousness is in our world, how many other animals are conscious. All these questions have been around for forever, really. Uh, so the question for me is, well, why shouldn't you be interested in these things? We want to know. Where do we fit into the wider picture of nature? But there are also practical reasons to be interested in consciousness, too. And I think for a flourishing science of consciousness uh these practical questions and the practical value of consciousness research should be emphasised. One example of its practical value is in medicine. So here we have a number of a number of cases, a number of contexts where it's useful. One of the most dramatic, and I think one of the best established, is in is in assessing whether people who've had very severe brain damage. Are still aware. You have people in a condition sometimes called the persistent vegetative state, uh, which is not coma. Coma is a state where there's no movement of the body. It's you're very passive, and and it seems very likely that there is no consciousness happening. But in the vegetative state, people go through sleep sleep and wake cycles, but there is no sign of anybody at home. There's no engagement with there's no response to command there's no voluntary action the feeling that you get when interacting with a person in the vegetative state is that there is no interaction is that there is nobody there but of course this could be due to problems with the person expressing their consciousness and so neurology typically relied on behavioral signatures you know what people would do in response to verbal instructions and so on Uh, as a way of diagnosing whether these patients had any residual consciousness. But now we can complement these behavioral approaches with approaches that have been inspired by a science of consciousness. We can start to look in the brain and come up with what we would call biomarkers that might indicate that patient X but not patient Y has some residual awareness of their surroundings, even if they can't express it behaviorally. And so this method is already in use in a few places, mainly laboratories, uh, but it's been applied to to hundreds, if not thousands of patients now. And it has the potential to be game-changing in identifying cases that would otherwise have been missed where patients are conscious, uh, even though they don't seem to be from the outside. Then there's a whole other bunch of, I think, really interesting applications in technology We can think about virtual reality. The design of virtual reality, for instance, requires a very deep understanding of how perceptual systems work. If we're going to figure out how people interact with these new technologies, we need to understand what guides our perceptual experience. Where where do we move our eyes? What determines all these things? What do our eye movements do to our conscious perception? All these aspects of how perceptual experiences are shaped are very important when it comes to figuring out the impact, but also the design of of technologies. And the same could be said about machine learning and artificial intelligence as well. AI these days is increasingly powerful and already extremely good at doing certain things, but it's not very general, it's very bad at doing many things. And the ways in which artificial intelligence tends to be bad overlap surprisingly, or not surprisingly, with the sorts of things that we do that are associated with consciousness. When we're conscious of something, we tend to be able to behave very flexibly with respect to that thing in a way that artificial intelligence systems currently struggle with. So it's, uh, it's not just pure intellectual fantasy. I think the study of consciousness is very important already and will become increasingly important across whole swathes of, of society, of technology, of medicine, and of culture
0: perhaps this also includes uh, the brain computer inter- interface
1: absolutely yeah yeah good another another really good example um, there. brain computer interfaces have the potential to manipulate our conscious experiences and so you know a good a, a good example here is what controls our experiences of of will and agency when do we feel like we've caused an action and we've known from pioneering work back in the 1940s that brain stimulation can evoke experiences of intending to do things. Uh, So that's both a concern, but also an opportunity, for instance, restoring natural action patterns to people who've lost those abilities naturally, whether it's through Parkinson's disease or some other uh, neurological uh, disorder. And then on the other side, there's the readout. Can Can we understand through interpreting neural signals what people are actually experiencing? That's, uh, again, a huge opportunity, also a concern. We don't necessarily want to endow uh, technology companies of the future with the ability to directly read out our experiences in a privacy-destroying way. So these things, mm-hmm. are, are, you know, that they're, they're, they're all complicated. I think once we start talking about the interface of consciousness science with technology, it's really important to recognize we're messing with the fundamental essence of what it is to be a person. And there are always deep and problematic ethical questions that surround these areas. Yeah, that's an excellent point.
0: So during your uh, journey of studying consci- consciousness, have you discovered any things that really surprised you?
1: <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I do not know, actually it's, 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 I think the whole journey has been a series of little surprises rather than any one big world-overturning shift. Though if you look at it in the, over the course of 10, 15 years, I, I don't think I would have expected to come to the view that I have now, uh, which is very roughly the brain as a sort of prediction machine and experiences of self and world as particular kinds of perceptual predictions um that speak to a very tight relationship between our conscious experience and our nature as as living organisms i think 10 or 15 years ago i would not have expected to have arrived at a place where i see such tight connections between life and mind um but it wasn't you know it's not that that was a sort of single paper or single experiment or single eureka moment uh at least in my experience science hasn't really worked that way it's just the the accumulation of things that are in themselves just a little bit surprising and bit by bit you end mm. up in a new place
0: so from all of this wealth of experience what is your take on a question whether the brain is actually capable of understanding itself
1: well it's all we've got so we better have be um <laughs> the, <laughs> there's 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 actually a a serious philosophical school of thought called Mysterianism, which says that uh, there are some things in the natural world, which are true, but which will lie beyond our cognitive competence as as human beings with the brains that we have and that locates consciousness in that sort of species specific domain of necessary non-understandability. It may be true, it may not be true, but I don't see what's to be gained from just accepting that it is. The history of science, the history of knowledge, the history of of human beings as a species has been marked by collectively our ability to understand things that previously seemed entirely mysterious. And we do that, of course, because the way we understand things is not by one brain figuring it all out from a standing start and we build on the insights of others and the terms of the question always change too. So I'm pretty sure that just assuming that consciousness is somehow escaping our cognitive competence because it's some sort of recursive thing where how could the brain possibly understand itself... I don't find that particularly compelling or, or appealing because I think knowledge is not just a product of a brain. It's a product of many, many brains over much time.
0: That's a great, uh, really hopeful outlook.
1: <laughs> well, you have to be optimistic, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I would like to ask, what are you currently working on and what would be your next project?
1: No, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. But um Yeah, so there's there's many, many things happening, uh, many new directions, actually. Um, As we said at the beginning, one of the problems has been, haven't really been in the lab very much for the last year, but we've still been working on a few things. Uh, One topic that I was just talking about today with a colleague and a a PhD student is this topic of emergence. So there's this idea that's been around in philosophy and, and physics for a very long time that some properties that we observe in the natural world are are emergent. They depend uh, that they're sort of, they're instances where something seems to behave as a whole that's more than the sum of its parts. You you see a flock of birds swirling around a building, uh, roosting for the night, and the flock seems to have a life of its own. And there's some super interesting challenges in how we get a little bit more specific about that notion. Can we, for instance, for any any arbitrary system. And here I'm, of course, really thinking about brains. Is there any way that we could look at the dynamics of a brain and find out whether there are any emergent processes happening? And then if so, are those relevant to consciousness in some way? Uh, and I want to say that there's, I'm trying to be quite dull about phrasing that question because there's uh, there's a temptation again to just appeal to mystery and say, well, consciousness is, seems to be very very mysterious and it doesn't seem to be explainable in terms of its neural underpinning. So it's it's emergent in some weird non-specified way from its neural basis. And I don't mean this at all. I want to be, be much more specific about emergence and and use it in much the sense that we talk about a flock of birds. There's nothing spooky, there's nothing supernatural going on, but there is a sense in which consciousness seems to be more than the sum of its parts or the sum of its individual mechanistic bits and pieces. So developing a useful mathematics of emergence that we can apply to brains is something that um, with a number of colleagues here we've been working on for a bit and uh, and now focusing on quite a lot. Um, And then at the other end of the scale from this sort of new mathematics is uh, rehabilitating another very old concept in psychology, which is hypnosis. Hypnosis has also quite a lot of baggage, just like consciousness itself. But again, just like consciousness, hypnosis is a real thing. People differ reliably and stably in how hypnotically suggestible uh, they are. And with some other colleagues, uh, Peter Lash and Warwick Roseboom and Zolta and Dienes, um, and a PhD student Federico Michele, we are interested in how deep this phenomenon goes. To what extent are our perceptual worlds shaped by these sorts of expectations and suggestions that, that come from our our environment? And uh, this is proving to be super interesting that a lot of phenomena that we thought were due to for instance, the brain combining different channels of sensory information, um, are strongly influenced by top-down suggestions as well. So it's a bit of a gamble, but I'm very interested as well in in how this whole area of research, studying hypnotizability and suggestion, how that can help us get a handle on how we construct our perceptual world.
0: This sounds super exciting. (laughs) So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the book?
1: Uh, well, it's kind of you to ask. There's, there's as always, there's a website. It's www.annilseth.com. That's the best place to look to find out about what we're doing, what I'm doing, what my colleagues and I are doing in the group. Uh, our papers are up there and also the public engagement stuff is up there too. Uh, there'll also be information about the book. The book... Uh, Being You, published September 2nd uh, and in October in the U.S., should be available from wherever you get your books. So I hope you find yourself motivated to go read it. It talks a lot more about the kinds of things you've been discussing uh, today. So thank you for that opportunity.
0: Excellent. Well, Anil, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been truly thought-provoking discussion.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much for, for the conversation.